Specialty Story, session number 53. Whether you're a pre-med or a medical student, you've answered the calling to become a physician. Soon you'll have to start deciding what type of medicine you will want to practice. This podcast will tell you the stories of specialists from every field to give you the information you need to make sure you make the most informed decision possible when it comes to choosing your specialty. Welcome to Specialty Stories. My name is Dr. Ryan Gray, and my goal here is to let you know what is available for you out there after your training, after medical school, after residency, whatever residency you choose, general residency you choose, what specialties, further subspecialties are there out there in the world? And not only from an academic setting, but also community or private practice-based setting as well. So I hope you tune in every week to hear different stories of specialists. Even if you're interested in going into primary care, one of the questions I ask is, what do you wish primary care doctors knew about your specialty? So I hope you join us every week. This week, I have a great guest for you, an MS specialist, an academic MS specialist. We have Dr. Jacqueline Bernard, who's been out in practice now, out of her training for many years now, and has been in the community and private practice, and now is back in an academic setting. And this one hits a little close to home for me because I was diagnosed, if you didn't know, I was diagnosed with MS about three and a half years ago. And so we had a chat about her career as an MS specialist, what drew her to it, what keeps her happy in it, what maybe she doesn't like about it, and what advice she has for you if you're interested in possibly learning about studying and treating patients with MS. We start the conversation by finding out about exactly what drew Dr. Bernard to becoming an MS specialist. It kind of grew on me because I, as a woman in my practice, um, was getting referred a lot of patients who were female with neurological disease, and a large percentage of them were patients with MS. And I, I, I started to really realize very early on that this was a very compelling group of people who were trying to educate themselves as much as they could about this disease process, what treatments were out there. And so I think it grabbed me pretty quickly once I was in a region of the country where the it was a disproportionately um, high prevalence compared to other places. Because as you know, there's an increased prevalence as you go either north or south from the equator. So if you live in a place like Minnesota, you're going to see a lot of MS. And so I think it just, it was maybe just the volume of people that I was seeing. And um, so pretty quickly that volume grew. And I would say within a couple of years of moving to Minnesota, that started to impact me. The The brain as a neurologist, the brain is the brain. It's not like a, an orthopedic surgeon who's like, oh, I, I really like the ankle versus the wrist. <laughs> what, what was it about the, the pathology of MS or the treatment of MS or lack of treatment or the, the patients that really drew you to it? Well, I think that MS is a very tricky disease. You have to be a bit of a detective. And that's also true about neurology in general. But it's even more of this, you have to be detective to figure out what's going on because MS is a disease that 
relapses and remits. And so you really have to look at some of the circumstantial evidence and it might involve the brain, parts of the brain. One time it might involve the optic nerve. Another time it might involve the spinal cord. Another time. Um, so, yeah, it really involves, you know, it can involve any part of the nervous system. It doesn't affect the peripheral nervous system like the peripheral nerves typically. Uh, but it could involve, you know, any part of the brain or the spinal cord or the optic nerves. So you get to see the impact of the inflammation in a lot of different ways. But that's not the most compelling part. I I think it's how people manage with it and how they bounce back and continue to really live with this disease that's so compelling. And then getting people, women, through pregnancies is really you know, something that we didn't think that women could do before. And now we know we could do this. And that's a very good feeling. Um, I think another piece about it is that people with MS can have really severe attacks and you can help them get through that and bounce back. And I think that's a really, that's just a great thing to be able to, to help someone through. I think that's more than the nervous system per se. What traits do you think lead to being a good MS specialist? That's a good question. I think it's curiosity uh, about the pathogenesis of MS and having in- an interest in all the different ways we can suppress inflammation. It's been really an interesting disease to watch uh, over the last 20 years. Because in the process of trying to figure out ways to stop inflammation, we, we've a lot of science has really um, been uncovered. Um, so I think if you're curious um, and you like talking to people, I mean, I always just say if you're nice and you know the cranial nerves, you're you know you're good. <laughs> but um, I just think that if you have an interest in neuroimmunology, and that's really not hard to have an interest in that, I think it's probably one of the most interesting parts of of clinical medicine today, but I might be biased. Yeah. As you were going through your training and even in practice, what other subspecialties in neurology, what other pathologies in neurology were you most drawn to where you could go, you know what, I, I could have seen myself doing that for a career instead? Oh, epilepsy easily was my first love. I was really interested in that. Uh, in fact, I took a year off uh, in medical school between my second and third year to just do research in epilepsy. I did um, surgery on rat brains and uh, looked at developed uh, models for epilepsy um, because epilepsy is really also got an interesting science, uh, interesting mechanisms. Now it's become even more interesting because we know that there are some interesting antibodies that are actually associated with refractory epilepsy. So I was very interested in that. I was also very interested in movement disorders. And that, I think, reflects what excellent teachers uh, we were exposed to in medical school in Chicago. We had some of the best movement disorder specialists in the country who really made movement disorders come alive and also actively engaged the medical students 
in Grand Rounds and invited us anytime to come to clinic and just hang out. Taught us, you know, everything, all the pearls and their fascination and passion about movement disorders. Um, specifically, this was at Russian. This was Harold Klawans, who was one of the editors of the Handbook of Neurology. Just a big supporter of medical students. Um, fantastic teacher and really inspired. Something like 10% of each class went into neurology because of his teaching. So I think teachers have a huge impact in the way they bring a topic alive and how that inspires students. So probably movement disorders and epilepsy. Um, but then at UCLA, I looked at epilepsy and then decided I ended up doing stroke. And then after that, ended up doing MS. And MS turned out to be much more workable um, as someone who was trying to raise a family that was more amenable to to trying to have a career and a family. Yeah. So let's talk about the the patients that you see as an MS specialist. Who do they look like? What are they coming in with? What is that what does that look like? So the classic example that people talk about are people between the ages of 20 and 40, uh, women to men ratio of about 3 to 1, but that is not the classic case anymore. So we're seeing much more pediatric MS. Uh, that means cases down to age 10. Wow. Um, and we're seeing first-time diagnosis for people in their 50s. Um, I have patients in their 70s we're still following in an MS clinic. Not new diagnosis, but... So what does that mean? It means that something about the way we live, uh, it's not just ascertainment. It's probably the prevalence is increasing. And so something about the way we live... Um, it also means that people are living longer with MS. So, you know, we have a, a huge age range in our MS clinic now. And that's not just in Oregon, but that's across the country. And I talk to my colleagues from MS centers around the country. That's what we all seem to observe. And ascertainment, just for somebody listening who might not understand that. So you're saying we're not just getting better at testing and finding MS. There are actually, there's more people developing MS than prior. Correct. Correct. And now that we have an MRI machine on every corner, yeah. you know, it is much easier. And in fact, people are over-diagnosing MS. And so that was at our recent international meetings, the European Clinical Trials and MS meeting that was in October, um, we were admonished that people are over-diagnosing MS. You know, spots on an MRI does not equal MS. Yeah. So um, I think it's important to make sure that we're following criteria and that we are able to sit with a little bit of ambiguity until we collect all the appropriate data before we tell people they definitely have MS. Yeah. And I've mentioned it on my other podcasts. I was given the diagnosis of MS three years ago now as we're recording this, almost four years ago. And there's some question now at this point of, do I really have MS or, or was it something else? So I, I, it's interesting to hear that there's, there's a lot of overdiagnosis, even though it seems pretty simple, right? As a McDonald's criteria is pretty simple. It's not a, it's not a so, test. It's a clinical diagnosis. So the 
good thing about the McDonald criteria is that they we could could now incorporate MRI information, radiological information into our decision making and use that to help us with proof of dissemination in space and time. Mm-hmm. And so now those criteria are actually being there's a decision to revise them again and we should show really good, clear evidence of dissemination in space and time. And if we cannot do that, then I think you're going to see more people having lumbar punctures to try to find evidence of abnormalities to help substantiate this. Um, So more corroboration will be needed. Of course, we have a whole range of categories of MS. There's the very, very earliest we call clinically isolated syndrome but even before that now people talk about radiologically isolated syndrome which is basically spots on the mri obtained for other reasons and headache is probably the most common reason people will get an mri Um, so almost like an incidentaloma correct yeah okay interesting yeah lumbar punctures are not fun i had one of those (laughs) not fun at all I usually tell people if you could take a walk in the park or have a lumbar puncture, definitely take a walk in the park. <laughs> I'll take that a hundred times to none. <laughs> so sorry about that. That's okay. That's the way it works. Um, when you're seeing patients, a lot of neurologists specifically, a, a lot of people go into medicine, go into these subspecialties and specialties because they love the investigation and neurology is big with that. What percentage of patients, new patients are you seeing come to you already with a diagnosis of MS or how many are you actually working up and trying to get to that point? Well, I see patients in the MS clinic and I also see some general neurology patients. Um, Most of the patients in the MS clinic have been given the diagnosis and they're asking for a second opinion, is this the diagnosis, or they're asking for a second opinion regarding some new treatments that might be out. Should, we, should I take that or not? Um, so I would say probably about 75 to 80% of the patients we see in the MS Center already have a diagnosis. Um, 20% wonder if they have it, are worried that they might have it, and I, most likely they don't have it. Mm. We might do a couple of other tests or repeat an MRI and do a spinal tap, you know, just to be as certain as we can. Um, and in the general neurology clinic, we do get a lot of questions about numbness and abnormal MRIs, and some of them will turn out to be MS. Um, but not all numbness equals MS and not all abnormal MRIs equal MS. What does a typical day look like for you? Well, on our MS day, it's a pretty busy day. We have a medical assistant in the clinic with us. We have an MS certified nurse with us. We have three fellows and we have several MS faculty. So it's a pretty busy day. Um, We're getting people roomed. Oh, we also have two study coordinators who are in the clinic with us. And um, so we're, you know, seeing patients, we're staffing the fellows' patients, we're trying to figure out if, and the study coordinator is in the workroom with us, already pre-scanning all of our uh, visits to see if maybe the patient 
person would be appropriate for studies. So then, you know, there's a lot of buzzing around where we're talking with each other, talking with our nurse, talking with our study coordinators, talking with our fellows. So we may be seeing our own patients or staffing patients with the fellows. Um, we might say this is an unusual MRI. We'll pull other faculty member in to kind of look at it because we can pull up our MRIs on our desktops in the workroom and we have probably 12 or 14 desktops in the workroom. So we do a lot of discussions there. Um, so it's kind of a, a little bit of a noisy buzz going on and we're all kind of moving fast and kind of a little bit of a crowd control situation, but it's fun. It's really interesting. And um, our patients um, are, we do time 25 foot walk. So you might see if you walked in the hallway, you'd see patients being timed by our MAs to, and then compared to, you know, prior visits, how they did this time compared to last time. What percentage of your time is spent with MS specifically versus general neurology? Um, right now it's about 50, 50, because I also have another administrative role. I'm the vice chair for clinical operations in my department. So I'm doing a lot of work around access in our state of Oregon. And so to that end, I'm seeing patients learning about how they get referred in. And so that's part of why I do some general neurology so I can appreciate since I've been at this institution only for about a year and a half, I'm still trying to understand referral patterns. So that's a big part of my homework is understanding access and improving it in every way that we can. So part of my role is that in addition to my work as an MS specialist. What does call look like for you? In academic medicine, our call is a little bit different. So for example, this week and next week, I'm on the teaching service. This kind of call is a little bit different. Our residents are taking the call for the general neurology ward as well as the stroke service. When we're covering the neurology ward, we aren't covering the stroke service. But uh, for at least the first week of our two-week stint, we are covering the transfer service. So any doctor in the state of Oregon and sometimes the state of Washington, and it might be Idaho or Montana, can call in to HSU if they have a neurology question and or if they have a transfer, potential transfer. Um, and we take those calls. We have a very, um, what's the word I'm trying to think of, um, very organized but very data-driven transfer center and in fact they call it command control <laughs> so it's a little bit like star wars and they're really monitoring all the calls that come in everything's recorded and we give advice we may follow that patient the doctor's telling us about over the week with intermittent calls with some suggestions or if we think it's really a critical patient then we suggest that they uh, try to transfer the patient, and then our transfer center makes it happen if there's a bed available. Bed availability, of course, is a problem at academic medical centers around the country. Um, so we are no different from that, but we're working on that. Um, we also partner with other community hospitals. So some of the less acute neurology transfers might go to one of our community partners rather 
then all the way into the university hospital. So my calls are intermittent during the day and at night for the first week of the two-week uh, stint. We also are covering, you know, 24-7. So last night I had calls intermittently throughout the night, which was a little bit of a drag because I also, in my academic role, I had a 7 a.m. meeting to talk to all the executive people, all, all of leadership about our access work. So um, at least I was awake for that. So that was a good thing. <laughs> You're awake because you never went to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> so... Anyhow, yeah, so a call is different than when you're in private practice, which I also did for a number of years. And that would be you're on call 24-7 for a full week, and you are taking primary call. And most of those are going to be people you're going to be seeing in consultation later that day or the next day. Um, or it might be, you know, you're at the hospital, you finish rounds, you're heading home, and you get a call from the ER, and it's an acute stroke, or it's a huge hemorrhage and you have to go right back and go and do that consult because you're it. Uh, neurologists, you know, we're consultative um, when we're, most of us are working in private practice at academic institutions. We typically have a neurology ward. That's where we do our teaching. Um, so it's a little bit different, but typically when neurologists go out into private practice, they're strictly, consultative they're not running a ward what was your decision to leave private practice and go back into academics well my kids were bigger and so i could spend more time writing papers writing grants that's hard to do when you've got little children you can't tell a crying baby you know what as soon as my grant is done <laughs> in february i'll get back to you you just you can't do that, right? It's now. And I think it's really, really hard to make all those things work, um, especially for neurology where we know that American Academy of Neurology knows that neurologists spend on average five hours more per week outside of work doing, you know, computer back backup work Um more, five hours more per week than other specialties. <laughs> Neurologists know how to write notes, that's for sure. Yeah, and they're getting shorter. <laughs> <laughs> but so I just, I think it's, there's a demand on our time that is difficult to balance with having a family. Um, you know, and it takes resources to raise a family. So, you know, for me, it just made more sense to, uh, cut back uh, during the years that my children were younger. And then when they were older, and then I was, I was able to, you know, dedicate more of my bandwidth to my work. So at this point in your life, you feel like you have a good work-life balance? Well, I think I'm probably busier than most people, um, but that's by choice because I had this Opportunity to take this leadership position and it's really interesting and you know it's good to be useful what why not but i think that it is hard to achieve a balance when your children are younger i just think that's very hard when you're a physician yeah what does it take for a, a medical student now who's interested in practicing as an ms specialist what does that training path look like now 
So that would typically now we have fellowships and they can be a one year or a two year fellowship. These are not yet funded in the same way uh, that, for example, a stroke fellowship would be funded. It's not ACGME funded at this time. Um, most of our MS fellows find their funding either either through there's the Sylvia Lowry fellowship. Some are funded through Pharma. Um, there's some uh, MS National MS Society uh, funders. So they often have to go out and kind of write their own application to entities that do fund. Um, so they have to really plan this ahead of time if they know that they want to do, you know, essentially for any fellowship, you've got to be ready by about PGY2 to start thinking about it for sure during your PGY3 year. That's when you do it. And then uh, you start to talk to, play, to people and places, maybe do some electives and see if that's really what you want to do. And then uh, start to get your, your uh, applications going. So four years of the general neurology and then one to two years of a fellowship. Correct. Are there a lot of these spots available even though they're not funded? I, I don't know what a lot means. Um, it's pretty popular. We have a lot of applications. Uh, I was at University of Chicago before I moved here, and we had plenty of applications for our you know, one or two that we would take each year. And it seems to be the case here. I always say MS is a growth industry and I, but I do mean that I, I think that MS prevalence has increased and the number of things that we can do has increased. Mm -hmm. So, and also MS was also sort of the place where people would talk about neuroimmunology and that's grown so much that at the American Academy of Neurology, there's not just an MS section anymore. Now there's, is a neuroimmunology section. We call our fellowship MS and neuroimmunology, but it may be that at some point that will split off and it will be either or. Um, so neuroimmunology, meaning a lot of these disorders associated with unusual antibodies. Um, so I think that there are different ways to think about your fellowship. What should a resident who's interested, a neurology resident who's interested in a fellowship, what should he or she be doing to try to get one of these few coveted spots? Well, you know, during your PGY2 year, you're mostly just covering the ward and the consult service, and you're trying to get exposed to everything. So it's that time as you're just transitioning from PGY2 to PGY3, where you set up your electives, set up some electives, if you think that's what you're interested in, so you can spend more time, number one, exposing yourself, but two, getting people to know you and like you and write letters for you. That's important. Now, if you have a research interest, it's very hard to do during your PGY2 year, but if you can think of something you might be able to do over your residency in that field, you know, some small project that you can submit to AAN as a poster or maybe you know, write a paper, a review, or part of a chapter with your MS faculty, you know, inquire early. What are they working on? Where can you fit in? Is there something you can do? Again, primarily to expose yourself and decide you like this, and then to get to know the faculty where you are so that they can tell you what you need to do 
maybe get to like you and try to help you stay there or write letters for you so you can go elsewhere, wherever it is you want to go. Um, go to meetings. It's another really good thing to do. Um, and try to present at meetings because that really helps you get some cross-pollination, see what other people are doing, get inspired, and that'll help you just determine where you might want to do your fellowship. Do you see, for, for the osteopathic student listening to this, do you see any negative bias towards osteopaths who are interested in becoming MS specialists? Not at all. Um, I've worked with fellows who had osteopath training. And they were excellent. Um, they fit in absolutely um, with the other fellows. And I think that as long as they feel comfortable doing it, I don't see why not. The, the osteopath physicians that did MS fellowships, both at University of Chicago and here at OHSU, were superb. They're just terrific. What do you wish for for somebody listening to this who is not interested in neurology but wants to go into primary care, what do you wish primary care providers knew about MS and, and what you do day in and day out to help their patients either get to you sooner or start the treatment or diagnosis sooner to help the patients? Well, I guess, you know, I just want to say thank you to primary care physicians <laughs> for all they do. It's a hard job. And I know that we have burnout. I know that they have burnout too. But I guess the main thing is not everything that is white spots equals MS. Not everything that is numb is MS. I think that's important. Um, so I think it's important to look for other entities and exclude other entities. Um, we're actually writing out an e-consult guidelines to help our primary care doctors at least do some preliminary workup before they send the patients over to us just so that we can help them know, but also to be more efficient and appropriate with our time uh, and who we actually see in clinic. So I think if, you know, somebody has numbness, you know, where is it? Do a neuro, do a good neurological exam. That's why neurology is so important in medical student education. So people can really start to put together all these random cranial nerves and motor and where are the reflexes learn that so that you can do a decent exam and try to localize in your mind. So, gee, maybe this is a peripheral neuropathy and it's not multiple sclerosis, or, you know, maybe this is a migraine and it's not multiple sclerosis. So try to do a good neuro exam, take a good history if you can. Um, and I think that would be helpful. Are there any other specialties that you work very close with? Um, we do spend a lot of back and forth with our neuroophthalmology colleagues because of optic neuritis um, presentations and different MS and demyelinating uh, kinds of presentations. Um, we do also connect with rheumatology a bit. Um, with some of these newer MS treatments, we actually connect quite a lot with our hematology oncology colleagues who in many institutions are the ones who actually administer these therapies, these um, the B-cell therapy and some of the monoclonal antibodies are actually mon are given, infused 
uh, in uh, actually um, oncology uh, infusion suites. Are there any special opportunities outside of clinical medicine for MS specialists? Sure. So people can, you know, of course, there's pharma. There's a lot of different pharma aspects. Um, People can work in the lab and direct drug development. Some people actually get more involved in clinical trial design, not just doing the clinical trials that we all do, but actually designing for potential drug candidates, um, and then putting drugs through the FDA. So I know people who zoomed into pharma um, maybe early in their career and were there and actually had the amazingly intense experience of getting a drug through the FDA. That, you know, there's probably no experience more intense than that. That's a 24-7, you have your SWAT team with all the science readily available should the FDA review want, you know, what happened to CD4 counts by day four and day 12? Okay. So then you put your, you know, you have your three calls, you know, you put the one call out to that one, get that answer. So there are a lot of different ways. Um, Some people who have been working in MS centers for many years can get scooped up and get offers to go to different pharma to run their clinical development program because those people presumably kind of know where the gaps are and can help give some insight into where, you know, drug development should go or running clinical trials. I've seen that a fair amount. Um, So those are some of the ways. What do you know now having been in practice for a while that you wish you knew before you started down this MS path? I don't know if anything would have helped. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> because I was a woman and I had kids and, you know, and no, there were no guidelines. You know, wh- this is what you do. After your first kid, you're supposed to do this. And after your second kid, you do that. Your third kid, you do that. And nobody, you know, no one said what you were supposed to do. Um, there were no guidelines. So maybe if I just known that it was going to somehow work out, that would have been good. But, you know, I, I had no choice. So I guess it, it would have been Nice to know that somehow everything worked out. But, um, you know, as I look at women today, many women are choosing to have their children in residency, and somehow that all works out just fine. But that was just unusual um, when I was going through residency. Um, It's much more common to see women in neurology now, and more than 50% of medical school classes are women. Yeah. Um, And... Interestingly, a lot of our applicants, uh, we've had a disparate portion number of women applying to neurology this year, at least in our region. So and I don't know if that's a national trend. Um, that just reflects that more women are in medical school. Um, but yeah. I think that there weren't guidelines um, for women, especially women who wanted to have children. There just weren't any. So, And I don't know that we are so much smarter now, except that we know that you can do it. What do you like the most about being an MS specialist? I think it's both the, the patients, you know, as I said, they're just so compelling and also the science. Um, I think really in some ways um, MS has really led with a lot of really interesting science. Um, the neuroimmunology field has really exploded over the last 20 years. Um, 
So I think it's it's a perfect mix of really interesting clinical uh, with really interesting science. What do you like the least? Well, it's generic to neurology. It's all the time that we have to spend on a computer. And I think this was discussed at the Academy of Neurology meetings at one of the sessions. Um, someone had drawn a picture of their mother, you know, and and it said, what I want to be when I grow up, I want to be a doctor. And the picture was with this person who's was wearing a white coat but had their back to the patient um, and they were at a computer. And so the idea of what a physician is has really changed. If you know, there are other people in the room with us that you know, the insurance company. Um, so it's a whole it's a very different um field. It's still good, but it's a lot more um it's changed. Do you see any major changes coming to MS? Um well it would be nice if you know drug costs were less. <laughs> um, people are working on that. I think that, you know, I think patients continue to be very educated about what they choose to take. And I just hope that people can maintain their health care coverage so they can continue to get the access to these important medications. Yeah. If you had to do it all over again, would you still be an MS specialist? Oh, definitely. I think it's the most interesting. It's been, you know, really great. There's some great colleagues across not just the country, but across the world, um, really working hard every day to improve treatments, assessment, you know, all the aspects of it. It's just, it's really the greatest, I think. And it's really interesting. Um, so I wouldn't have changed it, no. Any last words of wisdom for the pre-med medical student or resident out there? thinking, wow, I, I'm really interested in MS. So, you know, I guess my it's really in general to neurology, um, and I'll just quote some numbers. Uh, by the year 2025, um, we they are predicting neurology deserts in at least five states and relative sort of geographic deserts in at least two others because of the graying of our population um, and so more neurodegenerative disorders. So I would say that, you know, job security right there, <laughs> you know, in neurology, um, MS is always going to be interesting. And if you're a general neurologist, you're going to see MS. You're going to see a lot of other things too, Parkinson's, dementia, migraine. So I think that you get to see a variety of people, uh, lots of different kinds of diseases that happen to affect the nervous system and impact families hugely. Um, so that's why I always say neurology. Neurologists uh, impact patients every day. All right. There you have it. Again, that was Dr. Jacqueline Bernard, a physician out at OHSU. That's Oregon Health and Science University. If you're interested in neurology, possibly interested in MS, I hope this was helpful for you. If you're going into private practice, I hope this was helpful for you to learn about what an MS specialist does. Check us out next week when we talk to an academic general, OBGYN, Hope you have a great week. We'll see you next time here on Specialty Stories.